Uh, last week, we started the sermon with uh, a bit of a poll, right? We, we asked each other uh, whether we are Apple people or we're Android people, and it was actually quite mixed. It was pretty much almost right down the middle. I was quite surprised. And I was even more surprised that we still have a couple BlackBerry people in this world. And so that was a lot of fun last week, but it helped us to learn about uh, our need to be unwrapping uh, the, our new hearts that have been given to us in Jesus Christ. Well, this week I want to start by asking you another question. Another question. So try to remember when you were young, when you had TV, and, uh, and remember the TV shows that you used to watch. Um, how many people can remember their favorite TV show? Just the first one that comes to mind. Just yell it out. Nobody's judging you here. Just tell us your favorite TV show. What was that? Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry, okay. Happy Days, okay. Hockey Night in Canada, okay. How about any of our international people? Small Wonder. Okay, I have no idea what that is. Sounds good, though. So let me ask you this. How many of your favorite TV shows were centered around the family? Centered around a family unit? I sat down the other day, and I grabbed a sheet of paper, and I started writing down all the TV shows I can remember um, that involved family. And, uh, and it's huge. Actually, in 1999, 85% of all television shows, particularly sitcoms, um, were focused on the family and home life. That's changed a little bit, but in 99, it was a big deal. Family was at the center of a lot of television shows. And so it's actually pretty incredible to think about that. Um, we love to watch TV shows about family. I mean, there's lots of different kind of TV shows. There's shows about policemen, about firemen. I don't know how many shows are about surgeons and doctors. But we have a lot of shows about the family. So if you were to study television over the past 60 to 70 years, you would see that the family has been at the center of a lot of those TV shows. So back in the, um, back in the 50s and in the early 60s, the nuclear family was really at the center of primetime television. In fact, in the 1950s, there was 85 television shows featuring families. So we had shows like Leave it to Beaver, Ozzie and Harriet, Father Knows Best, and The Andy Griffith Show, among others. And these, these shows particularly showed the strength and the comfort that is found within the family. And the family was on full display. It was on people's TV screens everywhere. And uh, one thing that it showed in those, in those old 50s TV shows was that fathers were a strong figure. They were a foundational source of wisdom and discipline in the home. And wives and mothers were portrayed as happy and content as they cared for their children and cared for their husbands and cared for their homes. Now, as we moved into the, the 60s and the 70s, uh, things became a little more different, a little more changing with the times, right? A little more creative. Society became a little more liberal, and this was also reflected on the screen. Women became stronger, more independent forces. Husbands started to move back out of, out of the limelight a little bit, they, and they were being portrayed more and more as the silly ones, the ones to laugh at. I don't know if you remember the, the, the show Munsters, the Munsters, the Flintstones, the Beverly Hillbillies, Brady Bunch, like the father was often very silly in a lot of those shows. And then we have the 70s. 
the 70s into the 80s, family-based shows became more and more about the children, centered on the children. There was a lot of single-parent families that was on a rise. Uh, Parents were often portrayed as being kind of aloof, busy with work, busy with their careers. Again, dads were becoming more and more foolish, the ones to laugh at. It was actually the, the generation of really having children at the center. And then we have the 2000s. The family TV show has gone off the rails. It really has. It's, been, it's a million miles away from Leave it to Beaver, right? So no longer is dad at the center of wisdom and strength. No longer is mom content to care for her family and home. And children and teenagers, they are the wise ones. They are the hope now of the future. And so we see that this is a bit of a a testimony, a commentary of what's actually going on in our society. As we analyze the transformation of the TV family, we we can see that this also speaks of the transformation of the real family. Friends, the family of, uh, as God has designed it, is under attack. The world, the flesh, and the devil are doing everything that they can to tear down the family unit. One uh, radical feminist wrote this. She said, the nuclear family must be destroyed. Whatever its ultimate meaning, the breakup of families now is an objectively revolutionary process. And so what, what do we do about this? What do we do about the family unit being under attack? Do we just, do we just give up? Do we just accept what the world is trying to teach us? Or, or, or how about this? Do we try to just go back to the old days? Do we try to go back to the, the 80s or the 70s or the 60s or the 50s? Sometimes we think if we can just go back in time, we can repair what has been lost. But friends, I want to tell you this morning that our hope, our hope as families is not found in returning to some golden age. Our hope as families is returning to the rock of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Apart from the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, our families have no hope. In fact, apart from the gospel, the idea of the true family is dead. So we need to resuscitate the family. We need to look at the biblical teaching, the biblical concept of what the family is. And so by returning to God's word, Over the next three sermons here in Colossians 3, verses 18 to 21, we're going to be focusing on the family. We're going to see that the gospel has the power to restore what sin has destroyed. And the gospel has the power to resurrect the family. And so today, we're going to focus on one verse. We're going to focus on one verse Colossians 3, verses 18, and we're going to look at how the gospel has the power to resurrect the role of the wife. All right, let's read the text. I'll read all of Colossians 3, verses 8 to 21, and then we'll go back to verse 18. Make sure I'm I'm there in my Bible. Colossians 3, starting in verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases 
the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at these four verses. And what I love about preaching through books of the Bible is we may be tempted to jump over this verse. We may be tempted in churches today to jump over verse 18 and say, you know what, that's a touchy subject, so we're not going to go there. But we believe God's word is all sufficient, and we want every piece of it. And so I love that we get here and we have to preach it. God wants it taught. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word that is open before us, that you teach us and admonish us by your scriptures, that you have written this word by your Holy Spirit perfectly, sufficiently, for all of life and godliness. Would you teach us today? Would you help us to receive this with humble hearts? Would you help me to teach this with uh, patience and gentleness? And Lord, we ask that through all of this, that you would get the glory. So be with us, illuminate our hearts to this truth. Teach us, guide us, mold us into your image. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're going to just kind of remember where we are in Colossians. We've been, we've been walking through the whole book up to this point. The Colossian church was, was facing the challenge of some false teaching coming into the church. You remember that? Remember there were some plausible, some, some reasonable-sounding arguments from the world coming into the church. This was teaching that was promoting the addition of worldly practices to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were basically teaching this, if you wanted to be truly holy, you needed to add something to the gospel. You needed to have a fuller experience in order to really be a Christian. And that was wrong. It was all false teaching. There was, there was many different ideas and philosophies coming in to the church. And this was ultimately starting to bring division into the church. And so Paul wrote this letter to the church to combat this false teaching, but also to encourage and to teach true doctrine to those who are faithful. And so Paul's only answer for the struggling church was to teach that Jesus is preeminent. He is first. This is the right understanding of the gospel. So throughout this letter, and we've seen this over and over again, that if the church wants to remain faithful and true and on the right path, walking, they need to treasure Christ as first, Christ as supreme, Christ as preeminent in everything. He is preeminent. That he is first in salvation, first in worship, and that he needs to be first in our lives, in our sights, in our hearts. And so over the past couple of weeks, we've been learning We've been learning what it means to rightly respond to the gospel by setting our minds on the things that are above, setting our minds on the things that are in heaven where Christ is, not looking down below, not chasing after the world, walking in Christ, holding fast to Jesus, and having our minds renewed in the image of our creator. And then we got into what it means to grow in sanctification, this putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new. We learn that we have new clothes in Jesus Christ. We have righteousness found in him. And we have new hearts. Last week we learned that, that these new hearts give us Christ-like compassion, forgiveness, love, worship. And this promotes unity in the body of Christ. And now we see in verse 18, 
we see that these new clothes, these new hearts, they not only restore relationships in our spiritual family, in the church, but they also restore our relationships in our blood family, our households. And so, ladies, this sermon is going to be largely focused on your role this morning. And so that doesn't mean that men are licensed to just fall asleep. You're going to be raising children. You're going to be raising daughters. We need to all be aware of this, okay? And so wives, this is mainly for you. And all scripture, remember, is breathed out by God. And Paul says, your wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Which really leads us to the main point. Really, the only point of this sermon today is that the gospel resurrects the role of the wife. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So friends, what I just read to you, our culture despises this. They despise every bit of this. These 11 words go against everything that the world is moving towards. The idea of a wife submitting to her husband goes against the modern grain. Submission of wives to husbands is not something that we're blasting across our television screens. This is not on full display. In fact, I would even, I would even say unbelievers in this city would be appalled at us standing here and proclaiming this. They would be shocked. Submission of women to men in our culture is becoming a four-letter word. It's antiquated. It's old news. It's not right anymore. It's not progressive. It's ignorant. They would say that we have our heads in the sand, that this is old news. I mean, just think about the modern TV shows today. Um, would you typically say that the wives that are portrayed in these shows are ones of joyful, willful submission to their husband's leadership? Not so much. And so let's, uh, let's ask each other, our ladies this morning, how do you feel about that word submit? How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that command from Paul telling you as a wife, and if you're, you're not married yet, you're going to most likely be a wife in the future, to be submitting to your husband's leadership. What do your hearts immediately do with that word? Do you feel a twinge deep down inside? Just, I don't think I like that word. So what's the first reaction that you have? Does it leave a bit of a, a nasty taste in your mouth? Well, I'm just going to tell you, submission is not a nasty word. This, this word submit goes against everything, again, like the world is teaching us, and especially today for the, the modern woman, the postmodern woman, across all of our media platforms and screens. The new woman today is a strong woman. Strong is the new beautiful. I've seen a book in, in Indigo, and it was all about Strong pictures of women. Strong is the new beautiful. And a submission speaks of weakness. Or it seems to come across as weakness, doesn't it? And so how do we really feel about submission? 
well, maybe, maybe our Bibles, maybe the translation is wrong, right? Maybe, maybe the translators of this, they really didn't understand the original Greek. So let's have a look at that. So the Greek word for sub, to, to submit here is the Greek, is the word hupotasso. This is a conjunction of, of tasso and hupo. Tasso means order, hupo means under. So really it means to order under, to order yourself under, to arrange oneself under, to subject oneself under, to subordinate oneself under. So I don't think the translators got this wrong. Submit is probably the perfect word here. So no, the word is not translated wrong. In fact, this word is used over 40 times in the New Testament. And it always carries an overtone of authority and then submission to that authority. For example, it is often used to speak of God's authority over his creation, over his angels, over his people, even over the evil realm. And then when it comes to how Christians are to relate to each other and to relate to the world, uh, to submit is a willing submission. It's a willing submission. So to be clear, we submit to God because God has every right over his creation. He is the creator. One day, every knee is going to bow and confess that he is Lord. But when it comes to each other, submission is not a forced action. But it is commanded. We are to submit to each other willingly. The Bible speaks a lot about this in the New Testament. Because we love God, we will also submit to one another. How about in the church? Ephesians 5.21. We need to willingly submit to one another in the church. Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 1 Peter 5.5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. It's the same word, be subject we're also to be willingly submitting ourselves to the government. Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Submit to your government. And ultimately, we are to willingly submit to God. James 4.7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so submission... This is just a small group of verses, but submission in the New Testament is not negative at all. It's not a reflection of inferiority or lesser worth. It's not something forced. Submission can be defined as this. It's a voluntary, joyful willingness to put oneself under the leadership of another. A voluntary, joyful willingness to put oneself under the leadership of another. I wonder who modeled that best for us. Luke twenty two forty two. 42, Jesus says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the same submission. Jesus submitted himself to the Father. He submitted himself to death, the suffering and of wrath for our sins. In John verses 5, or chapter 5, verses 30, 
when he's suffering in the garden already, experiencing the wrath for our sin. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He submitted himself willfully. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus joyfully went to that cross for you. He submitted himself to the Father's will with complete joy for you. And so as Christ joyfully submitted willingly to his father's plans as he took the beatings, as he took the bludgeoning, as he took the nails on the cross for you. So we look to him to help us understand what it means to submit today as wives. And so again, submission is not speaking about something inferior, something worthless, something forced. It's rather that of a willing, loving, Christ-like submission that ultimately brings God glory. But again, this is not our natural tendency, is it, ladies? This isn't just the immediate reaction. This often isn't our first reaction to our husband's leadership. And I'm just going to confess, sometimes we're not worthy to be, to be leading or to be followed. Uh, we have some pretty crazy ideas at times, right? And sometimes we're loose cannons. But God's Word calls you to follow. So have you ever wondered why you don't want to follow? You ever wonder where that came from? The curse, yeah. Is it, become, is it because we're slowly becoming just products of our society and our culture? Are we just slowly adopting the idea of, of feminism in our churches? I think there's, there's something to that. I think we are affected by that which we expose ourselves to. You know, the feminist mantra in the 60s was this, don't let the hand you hold hold you down. There was a, there was a vicious move towards marriage holding women down, keeping them in the kitchen, keeping them waxing the floors. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I believe uh, there has been much oppression over women over, over the thousands of years of our existence. And even today, millions of women are facing oppression by men and by husbands. They are. And so the feminist movement has, has been trying to fight against some of this, and some of this is valid concerns. But in some ways, feminism has, has gone too far. Um, it's uh, permeated our schools. It's permeated our social media, our televisions, to the point of extremes. So no longer is it just about equal rights and voting, equal pay. These are all good things. These are all good accomplishments. But radical feminism has, has woven itself into every area of our society. And it's also trying to weave its way into the church. So the more that we listen to the world, rather than being informed by God's word, the more that we begin to accept these ideas as our own. And we try to adopt them as our own. Remember, we need to be setting our minds, not on this world, but on the things that are above. That's what Colossians has been teaching us. And so we see that, that the world has a problem 
The world has a problem with submission. But has it just been from our culture? Has it just been an influence from the outside? Or, or does it come from within as well? Well, the problem with submission didn't start five years ago, 20 years ago, 60 years ago, 100 years ago. Uh, this started back in the garden. It goes right back to the fall. When mankind first sinned against the holy God. And because man sinned against God, God handed out some consequences. And as God was in, in the process of, of removing Adam and Eve from his presence, he couldn't be in their presence any longer because of their sin, he was removing them out of the garden, he had some consequences for them. He had one for, for Satan and for the man, but this is the one for the woman. Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, this is God, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. So how many ladies can say amen that uh, childbearing has a little bit of pain? I'm sure it has much more than any man could ever handle, right? We know that. I mean, if I have a cold, I am completely uh, just a waste, right? Worse than having a baby. That's how I feel, right? But it's just not true. Um, but here, have you ever thought about what this means right here? It says, your desire shall be for your husband. If you have a, a, a new ESV that's been produced in the last, I think in the last 18 months, You'll see that they've actually reworded this a little bit different because the Hebrew has, has a, it's, it's an interesting way that they put it together in the Hebrew. But in the new ESV, it says, her desire shall be contrary to her husband. So the rendering, your desire shall be um, for your husband, is a little uh, deceiving. It almost sounds like you'll have a good desire for your husband, but, that, but that's not the original meaning of the text. It actually means that you will have an evil desire for your husband. In fact, what helps us here is Genesis 4-7. This desire that she has for her husband now is the same desire that Cain had for Abel right before he murdered him. Genesis 4-7, God says to Cain, sin's desire is for you and you shall rule over it. Sin's desire, it was an evil desire he had towards his brother and he murdered him. And so this desire that we're seeing here in, in Genesis 3.16, this desire is a fallen, marred, sinful desire. It's a desire contrary to what God intended. It's a desire not to follow, a desire not to be the helper that you have been designed to be. And so do you feel that at times, ladies? Do you feel deep down in your gut that you just don't want to follow your husband? That you want to go your own way? Like it's something instinctual in you. And if you've ever wondered where that come from, this is where it all started. It all came from here in the garden because of our sin, because of the fall. It's a part of the curse of the fall. We live in a fallen world. We live with fleshly fallen hearts, hearts that want to run away from God, hearts that want to run away from the leadership of our husbands. And we also see there that we see a curse on the men too. They want to rule over their women, but 
That's for next time, guys. We're going to go there next time together and, and be, be ready for that one. That'll be a good one. So we don't readily want to follow our husbands. Um, Kim and I have a bit of a running joke together as we go shopping, uh, go get groceries or buy clothes, whatever it may be. And, uh, and sometimes we're leaving the store and she'll be walking ahead of me. And, uh, you know, I, I park the car. I know where the car is. It's, it's over here on the left part of the parking lot. And we'll walk out of the doors and, and uh, bust her there. And she's walking ahead and she's going this direction. She's going over here. And I'm just kind of standing back, just waiting for her to turn around. But it's kind of a running joke here. This is Genesis 3.16 at play, right? She's wanting to go her own way. <laughs> but in all seriousness, this is, this is a big problem. Even in the church, among Christians, uh, most, of, most of the issues in the church revolve around relationships, and a lot of it happens within marriages. And at the core of troubled marriages, you'll often find a husband who is trying to get his own way and a wife who's wanting to go her own way. That's a big deal. It's a massive problem. And so the root of the problem is sin, and it's been with us from the beginning. But the beautiful thing is this, and I love how Paul mentions this here. Right after he built this, this massive case this, this massive case for the foundation of Jesus Christ and how are we are to respond in walking. He places this here. That ever since we have received the grace of the glory of Jesus Christ, the gospel has the power to reverse the curse. Just look back on what Paul has been teaching us so far in Colossians. Colossians 1 verses 19 to 22. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. We see reconciling all things. This is the reverse of the curse. Verse 21, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Christ's goal is to reverse the curse of sin over all creation, over you, to reconcile you and creation all to himself. And this includes our roles as men and women. Colossians 2, verses 12 to 13. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. God has reversed the curse of death. And you are alive in Jesus Christ. The curse has been reversed. You are alive and now enabled by the power of the Spirit to live for Christ. Colossians 3.1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This putting off of the old man and putting on of the new. Last week we were talking about putting on our new hearts. The reverse of the curse. No longer do we have hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh that can be used by God and to transform us. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is the power of the gospel to raise us from the dead and to raise our roles in our families from the dead. 
The gospel not only defines you as a kingdom citizen, it also refines you as a kingdom citizen. The gospel has the power to resurrect the role of the wife. And so as you and I, as we put on our new clothes in Jesus Christ, God is faithful to transform us. And specifically for for women this morning, women are given the grace to be transformed from unwilling, protesting rebels to becoming willful, joyful, submissive helpers for the glory of God. That's the power of the gospel. It's like returning back to Genesis 2, verse 18, when there was no sin in the world. Everything was good, really good, God said. After God created man and every animal on the earth, he says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. God puts Adam to sleep, and then he makes the woman from his rib, and and man wakes up, and he rejoices. The most beautiful thing he has ever seen is now before him. And he cries out, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam was rejoicing in the beauty and the helpfulness of his wife. And he held fast to her, leaving his parents, held fast to her. She was now a co-regent of the kingdom, and she was his equal, one flesh, Covenant partner, perfect in her role, willingly, joyfully submitting to the leadership of her husband. Ladies, believe it or not, this is where you have been designed to find your greatest earthly joy. Following the leadership of your husband. Because when we get this right, God gets the glory. So when you see a wife joyfully submitting to her husband, this is a picture of something so much greater. It's not just about the marriage. In fact, marriage is not really about us at all. Marriage is only a temporary thing in this world. There will be no giving or taking of marriage in heaven. Marriage teaches us it's a picture of the gospel. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. And as women today joyfully and willingly submit to their husbands, they proclaim the truth that the church willingly and submissively, joyfully follows their Savior. Ephesians 5, 22-24 sister verse to this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So ladies, when you proclaim, or when you submit to your husband, you proclaim the gospel. You proclaim that Jesus is the head of the church. 
his body, and that Jesus is himself the Savior. So it's much more than just, than just willing yourself to submit or just reading these words and saying, okay, I see it. Then I must do it. It's really understanding that what you're doing testifies to the truth. That your husband is the head of your home. That he is the leader of your marriage as prescribed by God. This is his design. Just as Christ is head over the church. So again, submission is nothing negative at all. Submission to your husband is a glorious parable. A parable of the church following the Savior. Submission is the gospel. And this is countercultural. This is strange in the eyes of the world. In fact, like I already said, this is despised. You want to know why it's despised by the world? Because the gospel is at the center of it. The gospel is despised. And so submission is so much more. And I love that Paul adds at the end a qualifier to the end of this verse. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. As is fitting to who? As is fitting to you, as is fitting to the husband, as is fitting to the wife. No, as is fitting to the Lord. Submission conforms to God's design not to ours. Submission is God's prerogative. It is his measure. So wives, your submission is not based on your husband's definition or on your definition. It's not even really based on his behavior. It's, it's based on you serving the Lord. It's based on God's good and holy design as is fitting to the Lord. One thing I like about that statement, too, it also talks about, as is fitting to the Lord, the Lord looks upon your heart, right? The Lord can see your heart. So you can't be like that disobedient child that is saying, I'm sitting down, but I'm standing up on the inside, right? God sees the heart. He sets the standard, and the standard is his holy character. And the only way that you can satisfy his design is to submit to his ways. And so the gospel transforms and resurrects the role of the wife. Now I know that this, this subject has, has much more to be talked about. I know that there could be a lot of questions, different angles, different scriptures as well, that we're not going to actually get to today. Uh, in the future, we're going we're gonna to pursue some of this biblical manhood and womanhood together. We'll probably do a sermon series on what that looks like in our homes. And that'll be for the future. We'll be getting there. But today, I want to leave you with some points of application. How do I practically apply this to my life? So what I want you to do is to leave today with a working list of what submission is and what it is not. Okay? Because we have to be careful. We have to be wise. So let's, let's, uh, let's have a look at this. The first is this. Biblical submission is not inequality. It's not inequality. 
The Bible is very clear that both men and women are created in his image. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Equal. So the role of submission is not one of inequality at all. As we just saw earlier, Jesus himself submitted to his Father going to the cross. And this doesn't mean that Jesus was unequal with God. Within the Trinity, we see submission within the Trinity, within the Son to the Father. They are all equally God. There is no inequality, and the same goes with our marriages. To submit does not mean unequal. So as the wife submits to her husband as head, she is not inferior, and she is not of any less worth. She is merely differentiated by role, but equal in essence. We have different functions, different designs. That's how God has designed us. The man is designed to be the leader. That doesn't make him superior. It just is a different function, and it reflects the Godhead, and it reflects the church. It's not inequality. In fact, Galatians 3.28 also says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. So there's no room for oppression here. There is no room for superiority. In, in submission, wives will always remain equal to their husbands in the eyes of God. And that's the eyes that matter. Uh, submission is not a lack of voice. Submission is not a lack of voice. Submission does not mean that you turn your brains off. It doesn't mean that you don't have an opinion. Submission does not mean that your husband always gets his way. That's one for the husbands there too. You don't always get your way. No, you have a voice. So if your husband really understands how wise it is to seek the voice of his wife, he will follow the Lord better by having a wife who is full of grace. This is a one flesh thing, marriage, right? Which means God has brought two people together, two different people, different roles, different functions, different physio physiologies, and they come together as a better reflection of God's image. Male and female, he created them. And so ladies, you have a voice. Men, she has a voice. Treasure that voice. Welcome it. Seek it out. You need it. I know Kim will, will, will come and, and talk to me about something I've said or, or, or something I've done. And, uh, and sometimes it hurts to hear that, right? But we need to be welcoming that, men. Welcome the voice of your wife. You have a voice. Use your voice with much respect and gentleness. Submission is not outward conformance. It's not outward conformance. 1 Samuel 6, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So ladies, if, if you are submitting on the outside but not on the inside, you're not really submitting at all. God wants your heart. Remember the Beatitudes. Jesus demolished outward behavior and drove it to the heart. So true, genuine submission has no room for Pharisees, has no room for hypocrisy. 
Yes, I acknowledge we as men can be a little foolish at times. We can be loose cannons. We may be hard to follow at times. But don't just follow on the outside. Follow on the inside. Submission is not license for abuse. It is not license for abuse. This just seems obvious. Don't believe the lie that submission to your husband means he can hurt you. He can abuse you. Some church groups over the, the centuries have abused the idea of submission. And they have been horrifically oppressive to their wives, controlling them with fear and intimidation, not loving them as this next verse prescribes, but being harsh with them, being heavy with the ruling hand. So wives, as, as an elder of this church, I want you to know that there is no room for abuse. There's no room for abuse from your husbands. It's not licensed for abuse. There are proper biblical and legal steps that must be abided in this area. Submission is not licensed for abuse. And this, submission does not come before Christ. Submission does not overlook sin. This is much like the last one. Submission does not overlook or follow your husband into sin. You follow Christ first. You follow your husband as he follows Christ, but he cannot come between you and following the Lord. If we have learned anything in this book of Colossians, we've learned that Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is first. And so this is, it means that submission does not come before Christ. Now there's so much more we could talk about of what sin is not. Let's talk about a few things of what submission is. Submission reflects Christ. We've already talked about a lot of this already. You were created to become one flesh with your husband. Uh, this joyful submission, it pleases the Lord. It reflects Christ. In fact, your submission to him helps your husband better reflect Christ himself. If, if you want to remember anything here from this point, ladies, you are a refining grace given to your husband by God. You are a refining grace in his life. And we need to treasure that, men. Biblical submission reflects Christ. Biblical submission preaches the gospel. We've already said this. Joyful submission preaches the truth, the greatest news that could ever be shared. When you follow your husband willingly, joyfully, you're teaching the gospel to a watching world. The world looks and they see that that marriage is different. It also does this. Biblical submission teaches the fear of the Lord. So wives, as you submit to your husbands, you teach your kids to fear the Lord. That's what we want. We want our children to fear the Lord, to trust in the Lord. As you respect and as you follow your husband, your children witness God's good design. And they see a marriage, a biblical marriage, that points them to Jesus Christ and the gospel. Biblical submission fosters peace and harmony. As last week we were talking about our new hearts in the church Produce unity, peace, and harmony. This just naturally flows out into your marriage as well and in your homes. So your submission creates peace and harmony and unity in the home. And finally this, biblical submission is at the center of your greatest joy. It's at the center of your greatest joy. 
Ladies, the world has lots to offer you. It promises all kinds of things, all kinds of fulfillments. But like I've already said, your greatest earthly joy and fulfillment is in willful, joyful submission, following your husband, worshiping the Lord with him. Just like Christ submitted himself willfully and joyfully to the cross, submission is an awesome thing. Submission is a godly thing. And you've been given this gift of submission. Again, much more can be said, and we'll get there again one day. But know this, the gospel resurrects the role of the wife. The gospel resurrects the family. As the curse has turned everything upside down, the gospel can resurrect that, resuscitate that. And we can have a reflection of what God has designed on this earth. And so, ladies, this morning, I call on you to embrace your calling. We'd love to talk with you about this. I know in our women's ministry, we, we talk about these things as well. Biblical womanhood. And there's so many awesome resources out there. I know there's some from Nancy Lee DeMoss, Martha Peace, and uh, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood is another great resource that you can go to to have a look at some of this as well. But know this, we can do none of this apart from the gospel of Jesus. That's why the gospel is what resurrects the role of the woman. And trying to do this just in your own power is, is not going to produce any fruit. You need to be following the Lord. The gospel leads you there. And so, let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we close. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this one verse. We thank you that there's much here, and we've barely scraped the surface. And Lord, we thank you that, uh, again, that, that you are clear, you are precise. You don't hold back any punches. You reveal what you want to reveal to us. And Lord, we see this as an issue. We see this as a problem, and we see that ultimately this comes from the curse of the fall, but we rejoice, Lord, knowing that the power of your gospel restores all things that it can resurrect the family from the dead and that we can celebrate with you the gospel. And we can celebrate with you that our roles as men and women and children and as parents can be resurrected. And so today we ask that this one verse would be applied into our hearts deeply, uh, that, we would, that we would run to you for strength, that we would run to the Holy Spirit for strength, empowering us to live this out, and that we would do it not only for ourselves, not only for our marriages, not only for the church, but for the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.